everybody. Welcome back to Critical Thinking, a Critical Role rewatch podcast. This is episode eight, and I am your host and executive producer here at Financial Films, John Bates, at John A. Bates on Twitter. And with me today is Jack. Hey, this is Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm JThomas411Mania on Twitter. And this week we are talking about Critical Role Episode 8, Glass and Bone. This aired April 30th in 2015 and stars Orion Acaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talithan Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Liam O'Brien as Vaxil Dawn, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlan, and, and as always, Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. And once again, without Travis Willingham as uh, Grog Strongjaw. Because he had to go see the Avengers that weekend. Yes, yep. he did. And that was a very important thing he had to do. Wow. Was that that long ago? Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 2015. 2015. I um, think it was actually Age of Ultron. I don't know ah, which one it was, right. but it was yes. something. Uh, anyways, the party was uh, previously on Critical Role. The party was hired to find an individual named Lady Kima. She's a halfling paladin of Bahamut, the Platinum Dragon. They went seeking her uh, in the caverns beneath the dwarven city of Craghammer, and after fighting and surviving, uh, they found their way to the Durgar fortress Emberhold, where they found Lady Kima captive. They released her, and with her help, assailed the throne room at the top and managed to slay King Murgol of Durgar. However, in the process, Grog was kidnapped by the Queen Mage before she could be slain, who then also disintegrated a portion of the roof, letting an entire cavalcade of molten rock into the fortress. The party then had to make a heated escape— pun intended. However, a number of the party members, due to the gazes of the two, due to the gazes of the two basilisks uh, who are kept in the throne of his pets, Lady Kima and Tiberius Stormwind, were currently stone. Dragging them out of the fortress as Magma began to fill the interior, a very deft escape was made, except for Vax getting his foot temporarily submerged in lava, which uh, caused some serious damage to his foot and melted away his left toe, I believe it was. Like his pinky toe. Uh, the party managed to make their way outside of the Emberhold proper and uh, take a moment to breathe. Where are we begin? So they uh, move cautiously away from the fortress as many as they begin to hear uh, Durgar rushing out, rushing out from it uh, on sort of a search pattern um, and rushing into it as well as trying to figure out what's going on inside. Because of the mass of Durgar swarming the area, the team decide that it's best to move quickly and try to find some place to rest for a moment. So they, they, they move over to a, um, a sort of a, a alcove that they find and uh, Keyleth uses some uh, hallucinatory terrain spell to hide, to shield it from view, uh, giving them some privacy uh, while they rest. Pike uses Greater Restoration to remove the Basilisk Stone uh, petrification effect from Kima and Tiberius, and they set up camp to recover from the battle room, or from the battle in the throne room. Pike does some work on Vax's foot, trying to heal it, and does a little bit. I think does a little bit of good, but she realizes that uh, it's going to take him a while. It's going to take her a while of continual healing to do this. Kima makes the uh, makes the point that there's a good chance Grog will be taken to uh, the home of the Illithid and the base of Kvarn by the Queen. And while they're talking, Kima asks who killed the, asks who killed the king, to which Sc- uh, Scanlan you know replies. Uh, I'm the Kingslayer, yes. Um, <laughs> and then Kima congratulates Scanlan on the, the, the killing the, the king and saying that basically, you know, uh, uh, as a survivor of recent trauma might do, explaining the trauma she was going through in order to help cope with it, 
And in the middle of her explaining the trauma she was going to, Keyleth cuts in with the statement, are you suggesting now, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, uh, are you congratulating us for being murderers? <laughs> and we're going to take a moment. <laughs> so I'm not sure if we said it previously before, but we're going to restate it just in case. Throughout the series, there are moments that make us love the individual characters, and there are moments that make us hate the individual characters. And not a lasting, like, I hate this character's very core concept, but like, in this moment... I hate you as a person. Not for the entirety of the episode, not for the entirety of the series, but just in this five to six minutes, I hate you as a person. And in for me, this was the first moment for Keyleth to take that role. For me. And from what I gather, it's a bit of a... De- it's... M- could be said to be divisive, but most people don't like this section in the first place. So we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to detail out the, 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 what happens here verbatim using the transcript I've got in front of me, and then we're going to circle back and we're going to talk about it because this is probably going to be the, the, big, the big talking point for this episode. So starting from Kima. Good, the, the cruel king is down and I thank you for that. He tried to break me, relish in his false superiority, dragging hooks across my flesh, underestimating the will of a servant of Bahamut. Keyleth, are you congratulating us for being murderers? Is that what you're doing right now? Uh, Tiberius tries to interject. No, he was a foe, and Kima cuts him off. Uh, Murder and justice are two entirely different things, and the deities of all good saw that this king's time was limited. Keyleth, are you suggesting now that we control the will of the deities? Kima, no, but we enact them, as long as we work within within their plans to keep us safe. Tiberius cuts in, I can look like them. Keyleth, that's a mighty bold and presumptuous of you. Kima goes on a bit of a slight tirade about how she has given her life to the Platinum Dragon, and that and that she's not asking Keyleth to worship Bahamut, but that Keyleth should, at the very least, show some respect to the gods. Keyleth then responds with, I do show respect, Lady Kima. I show respect when I feel respect has been earned. I'm going to put an asterisk right there uh, <laughs> for me to come back to. Vex cuts in, calling out to Keyleth, Tiberius tries to explain Keyleth's actions away by going, she's royalty, you have to understand. Scanlan comes in, we're all a bit cranky, maybe we should just turn in. Vex says, maybe we should rest. Vax says, we have a big day tomorrow. Kima continues, I watched as they executed my companions. The wondrous men and women who came down to these caverns at my sides, at, with my coin in their pockets, with the promise of justice. They la- And they laughed as they cut their throats before me, hoping it would be able to crack me. It was Bahamut's strength that held me there. Keyleth, Lady Kima, I'm not saying that what we are doing is not just, I just only wish that you understand, and I humbly thank you for your appreciation, and thanks for coming down here to rescue you, but you are correct. We have lost a friend, someone who we have been through a lot with, and this sort of gets uh, confused here. I think I think Marisha forgot what she was trying to say midway through this speech. I don't think so, but, but fair. Well, no, because it, it sort of meanders a bit to things that weren't... St- it was confusing. Someone who've been a lot through with way more than we have been th- than we have been than with you. So before we start boasting congratulations and you start thanking us, why don't you wait and we'll see what happens when we get out of here first? Vax to Keyleth whispering, she's suffering from PTSD. Vex whispering, Keyleth. Vax, why are you poking the badger? Vex, maybe we should just calm down and go to sleep. We all miss Grog. Kima sort of steps forward to look at Keyleth and. Uh, 
and is described as having tears running down her face to which Vex goes, Oh, well, how do you feel now? How do you feel now? <laughs> Vax goes, is this a druid thing? Kima continues. They tried all they could to break me, but I knew my destiny would not end here. I have a destiny that does not end here. Percy comes in, Lady Kima, I'm sure you know grief speaks before sense. Keyleth continuing, all I'm saying, Lady Kima, is that after all, after what we have done and what we have been through and the lives and the blood that even I have on my hands, you had better be worth it. Percy, let's, let us wait to talk of worth and talk of might until we are reunited, and Kima cuts in again. Child, let me explain why, you, why we are here. As while you may have stepped into the pretense of keeping me out of harm's way, there is a purpose that I and now all of us serve here in the Underdark. Now, I've been on this journey for more than a year, traveling wherever the wind took me, finding where my gift would find an end to suffering, just su- suffering, justice to the wicked and comfort to the downtrodden. I had just returned from the frozen tundra northeast of these cliffkeep mountains, heading to meet with Alora, the same friend who brought you here. Tiberius interjects, asking about Alora, and gets immediately shut down by Vex and Scanlan. Kima then describes a vision uh, that she had bestowed upon her by Bahamut, basically detailing the reason why they're down here, that the demon the demon Orcus had previously chosen a champion that basically wanted to unite the material world with the Abyss. That champion, uh, Orcus gave that champion two of his horns, and when that champion was defeated, the horns were scattered and lost. And then she received a vision that an evil entity had found one of the horns, and basically that's why she was here, to to retrieve and destroy that horn. Uh, and she ends saying that, you know, Grog's loss was a terrible thing, but they're going to try to find him. But should they not, his sacrifice was not in vain, because this is a great evil demon thing that they have to get rid of. Keyleth, after Kima finishes her grand long speech, Keyleth starts to respond. Sam go, or sorry, uh, Scanlan goes, say okay. Keyleth goes, I only hope you do not eventually become what you fear so much. Good night. Asterisk again. So that, and that's basically the end of their encounter. There's a little bit of back and forth between the other characters and then they, they rest. So what did you two think of this? <laughs> Jeremy, you want to go first? All right. So... This was this was a moment that I really liked from Keyleth. I know that's not the most popular opinion, but I really did. And at the time, I was saying I was saying before we started, the first time I watched this, I actually ended up getting in an argument with with, with uh, another critter about about this particular sequence and and defending where Keyleth's coming from. Not saying that Keyleth is right. That's an important distinction to make. I don't think that I don't think that this was the appropriate time. I don't think that this was that that her logic is entirely sound, but in terms of character motivations, just based on what we've seen so far, I think this makes sense. So this is where I'm coming from with that. You have, coming into this moment, Keyleth is dealing with the fact that their cleric, when they were in the the, the Emberhold, had just done something particularly ruthless, almost not even ruthless, even sadistic, in how how Pike had killed that one Duragar. And I believe that Keyleth was particularly troubled by that. That being said, Pike's a friend. She can get a pass. Keyleth is also dealing with the fact that they came down here to rescue Kima, and that's why Grog is captive right now. You put that all together, and it makes absolute sense why she would transfer all, all of her current frustration onto Kima. Add in the fact that there's a little bit of proselytizing uh, 
in there from from Kima and a lot of well if he does die it will at least be worth it and it just amplifies the situation and makes it worse so from a character motivation that's where I, that's where I see Keyleth coming from and that's where I did at that time before any future stuff came in where we see that this is not the only point where she has some issues with she has issues with let's say for lack of a better term religious I wouldn't say fanaticism, but but particularly devout uh, uh, religious or, or, people, or maybe organized, militarized religion. Yes, yes, that's fair to say. So, from a character motivation uh, standpoint, that's really where I see it. Also, perhaps because I've played a lot of characters like Keyleth, I'm a little sympathetic towards that because I always really like characters who are who are a little bit scared of their own power, and I think that exemplifies who Keyleth is. And so when somebody else is talking about their 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 religion and and things like that in sort of a grandstanding way that doesn't that potentially runs contrary to personal stakes, it's very easy to get aggressive at that point. I think from a narrative standpoint, it also works very well because it allows Kima the chance to talk at length about the backstory of the horn and really emphasizes in terms of of a, a dramatic moment here that while well, the group came down here as essentially mercenaries doing a favor for Alora, they now have a very personal reason to keep going. It it the whole it gave Matt the opportunity to detail some stuff that would have otherwise seemed potentially shoehorned in in terms of an exposition dump. And it explores Kima as the character. So for all those reasons, that's why I really like this sequence. Uh, I understand it's completely uh, the Keyless is coming from a completely illogical point, and I totally get why people don't like it. But those are the reasons why I love it. Yeah. Jack? So, yeah, I'll echo a lot of what Jeremy said, and especially I love the realism of this sequence because it's very frequent uh, when you look at a tabletop RPG as a storytelling medium for the actors and by extension sometimes the protagonists in the story that they play to stay emotionally detached maybe not from the plot itself but from the but from the the events as they're transpiring because all you know because it's not even you know sure it's all acting but when you're on a film or on a stage you are putting your entire body into a performance so it's easy to invest yourself in the character to an extent that there's there's more separation in in an RPG because the character is a couple pieces of paper and a handful of dice technically you know yeah, and then whatever I... else you contribute to it so that's why i love this because you know it's easy for you to look at a tabletop RPG as a story and say there's a huge amount of tension by a via plot and setting but the characters are still just kind of tripping through it, slinging out one-liners and making dumb jokes the entire way. Whereas here we get a great sequence of two people subject to trauma, trying to figure out what they think about the situation at hand, arriving in very, very different camps, and then confronting each other over the fact. These are these are there's an there's excellent acting here, both by Matt as Kima and Marisha as Keyleth, of two people on the ragged edge of their last nerve and 
aiming at whatever the closest target is. So I absolutely love that, you know, and it's a very real thing because when somebody comes to you and tells you basically, guess how shitty my day was, there are generally two reactions that humans do. Either you empathize with the person, try and make them feel better, comfort them, whatever, or on the other side, you get into what I like to call the trauma off. Oh, you had a bad day? Let me tell you about my day. And that's what I feel like is kind of happening here. Kima is coming from a position of recently subject to, currently recovering from an extended period of actual physical imprisonment and torture. She's got a hugely larger perspective on what's actually happening here, due in no small part to her divine visions granted to her by Bahamut himself. Um, And she's got this motivation of personal destiny in a religious crusade. This is this is a woman who you will be very hard pressed to sway from her objective or convince that she's wrong in any way, shape, or form. Meanwhile, you've got Keyleth, who is already kind of topped off on her guilt tank at this point. She accidentally killed one of the Dwarven prisoners. Uh, she's been exposed to this person who they were supposed to rescue, and the person they were supposed to rescue, who she's probably been building up in her mind as some sort of paragon of good, at least, given the affiliation with Alora and the fact that she's supposed to be, you know, a a force on the side of a, a deity a known right yeah and a, and not just any paladin but a paladin of good and justice and pretty much the first thing that this individual does when Keyleth meets her is brutally mutilate the already dead corpse of the individual who had been i mean like Kima has not been very Kima has no chill at this point, which you can understand, but from right. Keyless standpoint, it's probably a huge shattering of expectations. Plus, she's lost Grog, who Keyleth it's been already shown has a pretty tender spot for Grog. And Keyleth, I mean, we've only had eight episodes with her, but the kind of dissociated abstract concept of justice is not really a key is not really a cornerstone i don't feel <laughs> of keyless philosophy or worldview so saying you Fair know point. so say right yeah keyless keyless like keyless tends to take things in smaller bites one situation at a time she's got a lot of contextual ethics you know and so saying that you know this king or whatever deserved to die keyless is not the sort of person that is going to just say, oh, okay, well, if you say so. Yeah. So there's these these two very, very disparate camps of philosophy here, and they're just going at each other, hammer and tongs, and I absolutely love it. Now, granted, when a, a player's, or a, when, a, when a character's perspective comes out of left field like that, you know, because, I mean, Kimo wasn't even talking to Keyleth when right. this thing sort of got started. That can be used narratively, I would say effectively, one of two ways. Either you've built it up that this person has this sort of philosophy through foreshadowing, through show-don't-tell type uh, storytelling, and then something like this happens where these sort of internal aspects of the character finally erupt out, and the audience goes – Oh, yeah, now that I think about it, this totally makes sense. Or you flip it on its head, where everything's been happening internally and nobody knows because it's not visual. It's not something that's stated or even really shown. And then 
something just flips a character's trigger, they go nuts, and the entire audience then sits up, gets on the edge of their seat a little bit, and if you're going to use that effectively, you want then the next several sequences, if not next several episodes, if we're taking an episodic look at a story, to then explain or reinforce or something you know to it, it's it's an excellent way to sort of hook in hey guess what you didn't know what was going on with this character let me show you why they are this way but you don't want to ever isolate something like that it either right. needs a lead up or a good follow through one of the two that is what i would say is the the weakest aspect of this whole thing is that when you you know looking at it what are we almost 80 episodes removed from this episode right now Mm -hmm. we can we can look at the character of keyleth as she's been delineated over that long period of time and say yeah based on what we know of her this might not be completely out of character but at the time i feel like it definitely was and should have either been something that was hinted at before or something that was very quickly and immediately followed up with to explain to the audience, hey, let me tell you what you just saw so that you can then broaden your understanding of who this character is. So <laughs> I, I'm going I'm to I'm, I'm start off by clarifying that when I say I hate Keyleth in this moment, that is not me saying that I hate Marisha Ray, who is a very lovely right. person, no. and she's, she's a very, very lovely person. I've met her in real life. She's fantastic. Not saying that I hate Matt Mercer, who's playing Kima. Not saying that I hate this segment as a narrative focus. Specifically, I hate Keyleth as a person because (laughs) she is being petulant. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, is a thing that people do. And I agree, it is entirely a realistic reaction to the circumstances that we know she's been going through. You know, it's, 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 she's angry and needs to lash out, but doesn't have a reason to lash out or a target to lash out. So the first thing that presents itself in the first couple of words that she catches becomes the focus. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's like, you know, thank you for killing this person who's been torturing me. What are you calling us? Are you congratulating us for being murderers? And she basically, without doing the accent goes Valley girl, uh, go, goes Valley girl with an agenda. on Hema. <laughs> <laughs> she uh. like the entirety of her argument is based in nothing, just emotional reactions. And Yes, that is a very good narrative thing when you're trying to describe a, a person who is on their very frayed edge. And Marisha plays it very well. You, we can't really relate the facial expressions she was express she was using, but the, every facial expression she was making while being Keyleth just read to me twenty one year old college student with it with with a, with a couple of classes in poli sci who suddenly is going to know everything about politics and religion and try to get into a debate <laughs> with someone who is who's like you know has already has their degree because they know everything and they're smarter than everything even though they have nothing to say in the discussion more more like with somebody who's actually you know held a state senate seat for the last yeah. two terms yeah right yeah and so it's it's just <laughs> it's just this whole thing Keyleth is just being petulant and being childish which is good i mean I, i'm not saying that that's not a bad thing for a character to do from a narrative perspective mm. it's just nails on a chalkboard <laughs> that being said this section, while a good narrative segment, was not earned. 
and was not then built upon. Yeah. It's it for the past, like again, the past episode and the episode before that, this was not being built up to. And then 20 minutes later, it's forgotten about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this, it, it, there's, so there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a thought process of any sort of high stress, high tension scenario in storytelling, in movies and in, and in books where you have to basically earn the drama. And the way you do that is you build it up prior. You know, you have Keyleth making offhand, like a couple of episodes back, you have Keyleth making offhand remarks about religion, about, you know, about, you know, uh, uh, or even reacting poorly when her friends, when they're watching Clarota, their new best friend, suck the brain out of a Duragar. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. There were moments where you would have built this character up, where, like, you would have shown that, oh, she really doesn't like violence, rather than what she has been doing, which is basically just been going along with everything. There's been no real indication that violence has ever been a problem for her up to this point. Or religion up to this point. And then when she has been upset, it's more been like, like with the accidentally killing the Duragar in the lava, it's been less, Oh my God, I killed a person and more, Oh my God, they're dying slowly. Would you just, just, just push them underneath the lava and get it out of sight, out of mind, out of sight, out of mind. And then a couple of jokes about repressing emotional guilt, uh, repressing emotional guilt, but nothing. Bury that shame. Yeah. Bury that shame, but no real follow through on those. Mm -hmm. And then this explosion happens legitimately out of nowhere for where we are in the story. And then 20 minutes later, it never happened. Okay, that I will in this particular in this particular episode, it is not followed up on. I absolutely agree. It's followed up because on a no... little bit. There are moments throughout the rest yes. of the episode where Keyleth is like, I don't like her. Right. You know, it, it is not followed up on significantly, but right. I take issue and I'm not, not to get into spoilers because I want to tell the listeners to stop listening for the next five minutes, <laughs> but um, there's absolutely follow up. There it is takes a little there... while for that follow up to, to really come about. But I think the tension between Keyleth and Kima does pop up occasionally and it hits a big point much later and then essentially eventually resolves itself now there yes it is followed up on later yes but we're we're doing that we're doing a review of this episode within this this episode episode, there is no follow-up yeah there i don't think there's an opportunity for follow-up though i mean you can't you can't there, fault something for no. not having follow-up when they went straight, basically straight from this sequence into sort of what we'll get into, but but into a, a combat scene. The follow-up wouldn't have needed to be like a whole nother 30 minutes of dialogue. Mm-hmm. If while they're going through the... Because there's a, there's a bit before they get to the next combat. There's a good half an hour... No, there's still an episode before they get to combat. And in that half an hour, there could have been nasty looks. There could have been muttering about muttering about this, that and the other. There could have been her talking to one of the other characters and trying to express her feelings or or anything that there wasn't. It's a fine line there, because I think that. This sequence having taken up as much time as is when you have an uh, ensemble cast, you can, if 
the character continued to try and follow up on it later, that could very easily be seen by the audience of that player trying to... Hog the spotlight? Take over the episode, yes. Take over the entire episode by themselves. And that's something that you don't want to do. When you have an ensemble cast like this... Bleep this out if you need to later, but we already have one Tiberius. Yeah. Let it lie for a little (laughs) bit and revisit it, revisit it later after everybody else has had their opportunity. Otherwise, if you don't do that, then good examples would be like uh, anybody who watches uh, Arrow is a perfect example of Felicity's problems in season three, I want to say it is, when she's very emo all the time. And it really drove a lot of fans away from that character and even from the show a little bit. Because in an ensemble show, it seemed like the writers were trying to shove this particular character to the forefront when it wasn't a situation that was for the progression, right? It wasn't natural and it wasn't for the benefit of the overall Mm storyline. So that's that's an absolutely fair point. Mm -hmm. That being said, the follow up didn't necessarily have to be from. Keyleth. No. They're like, it, it wasn't, and, and I think part of my issue here is it's not just that Keyleth and Kima didn't follow up on it, it's that nobody, nobody, nobody right. did. Mitch no, right. referenced it. Because, like, there because, was no... uh, because one other brilliantly effective narrative technique is when you have a situation like this where you know you're going to be dividing your audience or, or at least contributing to a division in the audience. The other characters in the narrative can become proxies or surrogates for the audience. Have yeah. them reacting in however many ways that you feel are are legitimate or logical to the events that were just witnessed by the reader or by the the viewer. You know, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, John. You know, there there should have been since there was no build up you know, like you said, you either have to earn the drama or you, if you have the drama, you have to pay for it immediately afterwards. And yeah. that would have been that would have been a brilliant opportunity for, you know, yeah, we've had we've had our Kima Keyleth moment. And now let's go to the polls, you know, and see, OK, yeah. how is everybody else reacting to this? That would have been fantastic and I think would have been much more narratively yeah. effective device. I think and, you're absolutely and- right. And as a reminder, we are reviewing these as a narrative, Correct. not necessarily as a as a game. Right. So the, you, we we do have to when we're analyzing it, we have to remember, like, if we were writing this, what would we do? And for me, if we were writing this, I would have had a few bits earlier in the episodes where Keyleth was, you know, making the occasional comment of like, even even so much as so like. When they were analyzing, when they were trying to, to determine what the what the symbol of Bahamut was, and Pike wasn't there yet, mm-hmm. having you know Keyleth try to do it and failing on the religion roll or whatever, and then going, you know, I don't really go in for all that religion stuff. That's more Pike's realm. An off-handed comment like that here and there would have built up a little bit more than they did towards this thing. Mm-hmm. Combine that with an aversion to killing or an aversion to other people mutilating bodies or just an aversion to people attempting to justify something yeah or an aversion attempting to justify killing people after the fact Mm. an aversion to chloroda like (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah the chloroda blind spot is no pun intended is you know that's a whole other sticking point and and like (laughs) 
The problem is that we have an entire character that we can point to to say, here's where our cognitive dissonance begins. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's just – and while I get that being petulant is a perfectly good character choice and a perfectly good narrative function for a character trying to express stress and distress and up, you know, just being upset in general – it's not the choice I would ever go with when writing because very few people find petulance relatable. Yeah, no, it's not because a no one trait. wants to, because it's not no a one wants to, trait, no one but... wants to admit to being petulant. Yeah, I will, I will say <laughs> it's not a sympathetic trait, but if someone thinks it's not relatable to them, they're lying to themselves because well, everybody is at some point. Well, no, um, <laughs> everybody is, everybody is, but no one wants to be. And no, therefore you don't, you don't want to be empathetic towards a character who is being petulant. No, because, but there are ways I would, yeah. uh, I argue against the idea that it's it's just flat petulance, but I understand where you're coming well, from with well, that. In that, what would what would you describe it as then? I would describe it as because because I genuinely maybe this can't is something come up with you would a describe as petulance, phrase. but <laughs> I would describe it as essentially a almost sort of a directed panic attack. Yeah, I would say emotional I, I, desperation. I, I, I yeah. could, I could definitely follow that. Like I, I, I hate to use this as, a, as as an example because if if well if you don't watch or listen to our other stuff then then why aren't you? But <laughs> we have we have because, over two because we have let's over, be honest this is our worst podcast of, I mean, of all the well, podcasts we do this is the worst. I mean also I mean we do have we do have over two hundred and thirty episodes of podcasts you could be listening right. to so absolutely why the hell are you but listening to this one? <laughs> I, I I would go back to there's there's a moment in in Grand Terra where Quinn absolutely. My, my ranger absolutely freaks out on an NPC. Uh, which, which, which one? Which time are you referring Sphinx. to? Yeah, I was going to say okay. the, the Andrew Sphinx. It was, was yeah. going to be my guess. Quinn yeah. freaked out a couple of times on characters, but on the Andrew Sphinx at yeah. the time, it made absolutely no sense. I think to anybody else. Yeah. Well, she had uh, just been turned was, into a gnome. I mean, she'd just been turned into a gnome. She was deal, and that thing she was dealing with a bunch of different things in terms of guilt and anger and frustration and unfortunately that poor sphinx just ended up being something because she was trained to trained to, to hunt monstrosities just ended up being something that was an available emotional outlet for her i don't think that's necessarily petulance i think that it is almost uh yeah emotional desperation I, I hate using the term PTSD because I, I think most people use it incorrectly, and it's not it, it 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 trivializes it a bit, but something akin to that, and that's what I think happened with Keyleth. And so, because yeah, because the pressure could... is building up for Keyleth emotionally, and right. her, her her release valve is just waiting for whatever it is to come along and just bump it just enough, and then mm -hmm. everything's going to get let out, whether or not it was a justified sort of target. Yeah. Now yeah. I can, I can agree with that narratively mm -hmm. watching it. I can't because <laughs> that was not the look on Mauritius face. <laughs> that, that was not, I'm having a panic attack. That was I'm smug and superior. <laughs> well, 
and that depends on how much the concept, right? That depends on how much each care, because I think there's a varying amount of, for lack of a better term, facial acting from from the cast members because of the unique situation that it is. Yeah. Like Orion, he will he will hold himself in a in a petrified position for long periods of time or go off on a silent spree for a lot. I, Marisha doesn't do that quite as much. There were some definite expressions that that, that went on in here. I will agree with you on that. Well, and, 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 and the that, other that sort is... of that sort of brings up actually really, just really quick to stay on this topic. That brings up the uh, the difference between narrative when you have a visual and uh-huh. narrative when it's just text, when it's mm-hmm. just you know the 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 interaction is just dialogue or just textual. Because that is a thing that happens in film and in movies and in television. Yep. Absolutely, where <clears throat> there is a visual dissonance between what a character is saying and how they look while they're saying it. And this happens with bad actors. This happens with good actors with bad direction. This happens with all sorts of things. Um, Sometimes this it happens, happens with when... good actors with good direction because it's intentional. Yeah, That's and, true. So- and sometimes it happens <laughs> with rare, good though. actors. Sometimes <laughs> it happens with good actors and good direction, but just a bad edit. Right. Uh-huh. So where... Where the writing or the script indicates one emotion, but what we see and hear indicates a second emotion, and it, you know, there, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, those bother those bother me so much that I'm having. Actually, no, I have a perfect one: the Warcraft movie, <laughs> which which I love, which I loved. First of all, I love the Warcraft movie, so fuck off, all you haters. Um, <laughs> but but, are you thinking of the Garona in the jail cell scene? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, not even that. Like, also, Garona and Medivh. Basically, every time Garona was interacting with a human, there were, there were, like, things she was saying, but her face wasn't reacting the way it sounded like she was should have been reacting. And none of the human actors were reacting to what she was saying the way she intended for them to react. And it was just, there was a big emotional dialogue mix-up there. Where it seemed like the intention of the, the the intention of the dialogues was that the dialogue was at odds with the intention of the actors' expressions, mm-hmm. and that that's creates true. that creates a difficult read for an audience for, for an audience, and that's ex- basically what was happening here was like the 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 dialogue could be argued to have been you know a, a panic attack could have been stress it could have been stress talking it could have been any number of things. But the expressions on the actors just read petulance. And that's probably why I'm I'm only able to read it that way, because I'm a very visual, you know, person. Mm-hmm. And that, that comes like body language comes across to me way more than dialogue. And and that could be why I why I personally can't see it any other way. But even if you do read it as just petulance, I would say that doesn't necessarily negate the validity of response. And I know we've 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 already, I think, fairly all come down on the side of narratively you can justify this scene. Yes. But as far as the expression of stress goes, there are as many ways that people express stress oh, yeah. as there are people. Um, you know, and I can think of probably three or four friends throughout my history that when they get stressed they turn into assholes you know and they get smug and condescending and you know they they entrench themselves in uh you know unassailable generalities of logical 
positioning and shit like this, you know? Because I mean, and yeah, even so if it's you very, just, it's, even it's if very you kind just, of you to notice, Jack. Yeah, no problem, man. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah, uh, right. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, and and even if you read the transcript of this scene, you know, yeah. Kima is the one who is going into detail and more or less explaining her position, and Keyleth is the one who's just coming back with the quick, you know, sort of glib, you know, armchair logician one-liners of, you know, oh, oh, so what you're saying is this? Oh, well, let me let me put this assumption underneath those words that just came out of your mouth kind of thing. Yeah, and she does come across. You can – petulance, I would say, is a very valid interpretation of what she does. The The key, I would say, is – making try, trying to look beneath the outward expression and say okay what is happening underneath the character and it takes a talented writer to be able to do both at the same time so now i i'll, I'll bring your attention back to i put an asterisk yes let's go to the asterisk somewhere Six. so the asterisk that i put was keyless response to kima saying you should show the gods respect I do show respect. I show respect when I feel that respect has been earned. That sentence, <laughs> because it's a beautiful, it's it's a beautifully characteristic sentence of hypocrisy, um, where it's like you're saying you show respect while actively not showing respect, and I show respect when I feel that respect has been earned. What do you guys? Where do you guys stand on that outlook? So when – because that's not the first time I've heard that said no. and not even the first time I've heard that said in a tabletop RPG, you know, because the the concept of – all right, re- religion in the real world versus religion in a Dungeons & Dragons type setting are two completely unrelated things. Yeah. And people generally have difficulty getting into the D&D perspective because we're used to religion as a belief system that may or may not delineate a person's philosophy or actions, but something that is ultimately scientifically unprovable. Whereas in Dungeons & Dragons, 98% of the time, depending on the setting, if you know the right incantations, you can literally call your god on the telephone and ask him how his day was. So the the sort of suspension of disbelief comes into play there a little bit where, all right, it's perfectly legitimate for someone in the real world to say, I will, I can respect a religiously devoted individual as long as I feel they are worthy of that respect, not just based on what they believe, because religion is subjective in our world. Religion is much more objective in Keyleth's setting. So it's a very problematic statement to say, basically, sure, there are these divine beings that operate on a plane far beyond and in power structures so far advanced of my own, and I'm going to sit down here and sit in judgment on them and decide whether or not their actions are worthy according to my philosophical perspective. That's... If anybody's being presumptuous in this circumstance, I would say Keyleth is, to be quite honest. If you're going to adhere to the assumptions that are narratively based in this setting that Mercer has created. So I would say that's a very problematic statement. And yeah, I would agree with you. Damn hypocritical. But it's prob- but 
from Keyleth's perspective, very emotionally comforting probably to her current internal emotional turmoil and state. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you're sticking your tongue out at, at, at the god worshiper and it makes you feel right, better. And, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm not saying that it's not in keeping with the character. I'm just want to talk right. about that line in particular. What about right. you, Jeremy? But, but that you... line just taken, taken solo, yeah. yeah, no, hugely hypocritical, goddamn presumptuous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, it's definitely not one of her best moments. And that's, that's... <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It's so true. I can see where she's coming from again, because uh, it's a lot of like what Jack said is in terms of, look, we just came down here to rescue you. And this is what you've shown us so far. So I can see from her aspect, sort of how if she's needing to talk yeah, about yeah. Kima specifically yes, and not exactly. Bahamut. Yeah. Kima hasn't earned the respect. On the other hand, and that's where, yeah, it's a weird thing to talk about, like, like religious. It's one of my favorite parts of, of, of fantasy role-playing games and D&D and, and fantasy settings is the idea of gods and religions and, you know, in a situation where clearly there is, you know, Forgotten Realms. Gods come down like every other day just to wreak havoc. <laughs> so fucking true you know jesus christ mister could you leave us alone for a weekend yeah. no <laughs> i'm bored like five times over the course of like a, a a thousand year period and every time it happens something terrible happens to the world doesn't that so woman, it's really doesn't that, hard doesn't that woman have tenure at least by this point <laughs> jesus it's always she dies and then a new one takes her. it's yeah, yeah it cosmology is fun Cosmology is fun, and it's so it makes for for an interesting thing. But what I like about that is because most of, most uh, most most fantasy settings where they do that treat though it, it, it obviously it happens with with uh, polytheistic religions hmm. where each god has its own personality and its own motivations, and and so on so forth. So Keyleth as we know already, is not that familiar with with Bahamut. She completely missed uh, the Bahamut symbol several episodes back when they first encountered it, where Workima had set it up. She's not familiar with this deity. She knows there are several deities in the world. They all have their own thing. So again, I can kind of see from her standpoint where this deity needs to earn her respect. Still not a great moment for her because it is it is sort of a sticking your tongue out thing. But I can I, I, I can kind of get where she's coming from. So for me, this is an interesting statement for, for a number of reasons. First of all, because it is a statement that I've heard a lot. And and it's 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 most often most often said by people who don't want to concede something. Right. That that, that don't want to admit they're wrong. And also because I, I'm familiar with the 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 opposite perspective, which is I give respect until it is until it is lost. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, starting when we first meet, you have 100 percent of my respect, and then as you talk, the lower it may go. Right. <laughs> like it, you know, it's 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 that, which is the exact opposite of this worldview. And whether or not you ascribe to either is up to you, or whether or not you're on some third different level of where respect is a token-driven system, and every shiny coin you get is another shiny coin someone else, or whatever. I find it fascinating 
from a narrative perspective that a person who interacts with another person who devoutly serves a god and has those repercussions, which we'll get to in a second, come back to them, be dismissive of another divine servant. Like, because that, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like a dismissive statement. Like, oh, yeah, whatever, I'm better than you, or you're not worth my respect right now. Which, which whenever you say somebody's not worth your respect, you are inherently saying you're better than them. Whether you believe whether believe you're saying that or not, you are because mm-hmm. that's what the phrase means. Well, yeah, or even just saying you have to earn my respect indicates that you yeah indicates that you feel right. you're better than them. Right. There's there's yeah. there's innate superiority in that in that statement. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which brings to mind the idea, and I think I, I talked about this earlier, of the militant atheist, which is a, which is a thing that exists in D and D settings. For some reason, people really enjoy playing this character. The militant atheist is the person who will den- who, who will denounce or deny the effects that God ha- that gods have in the world, even when they're staring at God in the face, and will do everything they can to counteract said God or said or or, or said God's existence in their day to day in their day to day life. Which is a which is an interesting narrative character to have in a world like this, you know, because mm-hmm. it is that it is that as long as that's not the only note on the character. <laughs> yeah, as long as, as long as that's not the only note on the character, but but it is it's basically the reverse of what we have in the modern world, where you know, in in the modern world, you have the religious zealots. In D anD D, those are commonplace. What you have that are that are instead un, unusual are the militant atheists, and I think it's a fine narrative device. Again, if it had been implemented prior to this. At all, and if it and it does come and and again it does come up later down the line again, but not for a while. I fi- I think that would have been a very interesting choice that could have then led to more narrative discussion after this situation, but just sort of stuck there in the middle of this thing, it felt particularly petulant and just. I, I was interested in what you guys thought about that phrase because it, it's it's sort of like. When I was listening to this a second time, it sort of jumped out at me, that sentence, out of everything else. Like, just, just watching it, I, okay, Achilles being petulant to Kima, Kima's trying to not punch her in the face. Which, which by the way, brought, kudos to Kima for showing restraint. Like, yeah, no, Kima was showing a lot of restraint there. Uh, and then just, just this one line, just out of nowhere, out of left field... I show respect when I feel respect has been earned. I mean, in these days, it's something that we're, I hate to say these days, and I hate to say the internet, but (laughs) in these days, it is something that we're conditioned to hate because that is, that is generally the first line when you get into an argument with somebody on the internet of I'm digging my feet, my, my heels in and fuck you. I'm not, I'm not giving an inch. Yeah, which is why you never get into arguments on the internet. <laughs> Just I don't do it, guys. Just I don't do it. Said I work arguments kind of hard. Um, don't get into arguments on the internet. Never read the YouTube comments. I mean, these are just basic life rules. I read all. <laughs> I read. I read all the YouTube comments, and I get into every argument I can. Well, somebody has to. <laughs> so I, I, I think in that respect, yes, it's one. It's a. It's a. It is a quote that. Instantly, just bunches up your shoulders and and makes you cringe because our immediate association of that is you have nothing else left to offer in your you have no logic to offer in your debate and yeah. I mean really Keyleth didn't Keyleth did not have 
Keyleth did not was not standing on a lot of logic there. That wasn't the grounding of her her, her outburst. But I also feel like if if she had suddenly come out with like, and she hints at a lot of this. That's why I said like she didn't really get lost in the middle of that whole thing because she very quickly transitions from religion and killing. She very quickly pivots to grog. And I feel like those both were very, were both tied into where she was coming from. Hmm. Well, and, and even Keyleth's closing line, I only hope that you do not eventually become what you fear so much. Which, which was another line that I had asterisks because I wanted to jump over right. that. But yeah. Honestly, yeah, no, because like, that feels like Keyleth kind of buried her lead there. Even in, even in the, the composition of the text, I only hope, okay, so this is a primary only sort of concern for Keyleth in this thing. And if Keyleth had led with that, that I think we it would have been much more forgiving of the how is this coming out of left field? Why is this why is yeah. this suddenly happening? Yeah. If she had led with that sort of statement, Kima, you're supposed to be a protector. We are you you say that you are hoping to save the civilized races from this monstrosity that has been threatening from beneath the uh, the depths of the underdark but everything i've seen with you from you in the last 2 hours says you're kind of monstrous yourself that would have been a perfectly legitimate even out of left field sort of lead in to this yeah. whole argument and it could have laid the groundwork for a very what I would consider the more interesting ethical dilemma here. Hey, Kima, if we're worried that Kavarn is going to subvert and destroy society, how about this uh, Durgar society down here that he seems to be doing a pretty damn good job of subverting and perverting? Maybe we should think about trying to rescue that one. Hmm? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that, that that was that was why I had asterisk that sentence because then right. I was going to ask, you know, if this had come at the beginning, would it have changed the overall feel of the argument? And I think oh, it would have. It absolutely would have. I don't. Th- I don't think from where Keyless is coming from, it would it would have been possible for it to come at the beginning because that is an argument rooted in logic, and she wasn't yes, going off logic. <laughs> yeah. No, she wasn't. <laughs> and I think I think that no, was that sort of have completely changed the tenor of the conversation. And I, I think that was sort of a last ditch grasping at straws, trying to find something to throw at her, and it just happened to be. Oh well, that was a sound. What that was a sound argument. Where did that come from? <laughs> kind of thing. Why did you not start there? All right. So, so that all happened in the first hour of the episode. <laughs> Fifty and minutes then, later, and then they found some shit and fought some shit, and the end. So <laughs> we knew that was going to be the big discussion no, no, no. point. That, but that was going to be the that was going to be the big discussion point, and you know it, it needed to be. Um, so after all of that, they go to bed, and in the morning they wake up and continue to go deep. Or they, they 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 take a long rest, which by the way they take a long time deciding they're going to take a long rest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The rest of the first hour is them figuring out if they're going to take a long rest or not. Yep. It, like, it, it's like half of it is this argument and the other half is we should go now. No, we don't have anything. We should go now. No, we don't have any spells. We should go now. We have no spells. We're going to die. <laughs> um, and they eventually all concede that they should rest first 
because their healers and spellcasters are out of spells. So, they move deeper into the Underdark, and Vex picks up the scent of fresh blood. Uh, what she finds are marks similar to what was around the pillar outside the Emberhold, where they found, found that first bloody mess that they reacted to, yeah. um, and then forgot existed, yep. plus a number of Durgar ripped apart and thrown against the walls. After locating the tracks they, that hint at both feet and tentacles, Vex is able to find a small set of tracks, and Trinket picks up Grog's scent. They follow the tracks and move deeper, eventually, uh, and, and eventually the uh, obsidian rocks and jagged terrain gives way to fine sand. And traveling across that for a while, the sand gives way to a strained combination of broken glass shards and finely ground bone. And they have come to the field of glass and bone, which Pike helpfully uh, reminds us was in her visions. So we, we've reached this field of glass and, and bone. Which, honestly, is one of my favorite concise environmental descriptions. I just, I love the evocative sense of those, like, oh, yeah. five mm-hmm. words. <laughs> field of glass and bone. Yeah, it's, it's, that, it's very Dragon Age. Yeah, kind of it's is. It's very Dragon Age. Dragon Age um, slash Changeling the Lost, which specifically, you yes. might find oh, out about later. God, specifically, yes. Specifically, <laughs> Jeremy specifically knows what Dragon I'm talking Age. about. Specifically Dragon Age 2. But yeah. Ah. Yes, it is very, very changeling. But, but yeah, it's, it's a very nice little evocative sentence that doesn't really say much, but doesn't need to, because there's a lot packed into that. Mm-hmm. So uh, they determine that the, the way they need to go is across the field, um, and they don't want to walk on it. Keyleth refuses to set foot upon it. And, and starts to try to find a way above and across it. As they as they try to do that, uh, Tiberius gets an idea and has Keyleth make a large round disc, a large circular stone disc that they can all get onto. They then look at Trinket and realize that Trinket can't come with them. The one of one of one of the that's going to be a recurring thing of Trinket being bothersome to to take places. But uh, they they uh, Keyleth polymorphs Trinket into a kitten, and they they carry uh, and and they all get on the the stone tablet, and Tiberius uses telekinesis to lift the tablet and carry them across. All most of them do that. Keyleth becomes an eagle and picks up the knobs. That was the other thing. Yep. And Tiberius uses telekinesis to float the platform. They move very slowly forward until they and they see a path. The, oh, and the, because the, because I'm this guy and I did the math because I demand verisimilitude in my writing. Um, yeah, that never would have worked. If assuming assuming it's at the depth they're at, it's probably mostly kind of a granitic substance of stone. And if it's going to hold nine hundred even pounds. well, and if it's if it's going to hold nine hundred some odd pounds, it is going to be about half an inch thick at the thickest would not have worked would not have worked but anyway. well uh, <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't have worked if in uh now here's the argument wouldn't have worked if the tablet was expected to hold them up by itself it True. wasn't they though, are using it, it was, more as a tray it was just a the tray force of support yeah. underneath it so okay maybe the, the 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 lifting force was not the tablet but the telekinesis spell at which point it doesn't matter how thin or thick the tablet is just so long as it's there as a tray it would break once the telekinesis goes away, which in fact which it does. does. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because the telekinesis is what's holding it up and together, not the tablet itself. Okay. So that 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 I will counter counter man counter physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, halfway across these this mile long field of glass and bone, they hear a loud male scream, and they come across a blur of motion slicing through a Durgar party, including a troll whose head is removed in a blur as hands come out of the bones as hands come out of. 
the bones and pull them down underneath. One of the dwarves charges at them and jumps to try and grab onto the platform. Vax pulls it, Vax tries to pull him up and question him after they failed at knocking him off the platform. And Keyleth swooped down to try to see what was going on. She noticed what looks like an elf with four huge tentacles attached to it where its arm should be. And they, um, you know, it's sort of one of these stitch monster abominations that they have, that they have encountered previously. So Vex and Vax help the Durgar up and then immediately chunk him out towards the, towards the abomination. <laughs> uh, remember where I said, sorry, that's a great moment. <laughs> it's, it's a hilarious moment. Remember what I said about how 20 minutes later, it didn't matter that they were killing Durgar yep. in particularly cruel ways. Yeah. Uh, because they throw this this unarmed, helpless Duragar to who's, who's, what who's is obviously most, begging for sanctuary, who is right. begging for his life and for safety, and they throw him to what they know will kill him, just to see how it does. <laughs> I mean, and Keyleth says be, nothing. Keyleth says nothing. But they were in the middle. <laughs> to be fair, uh, Keyleth's an eagle combat situation. <laughs> so yeah, Keyleth was an eagle also. Right, I know, but, I know. but I'm yeah, just, yeah, I'm just pointing no, it, out. Right, it Keyleth was it was nothing. a little right. It was a little disingenuous. Of yeah, if you're going to have if you're going to have an ethical dilemma around the concept of killing, don't let the next scene be the right. twins throwing a dwarf into a literal wood chipper. No, no, you know? right. yeah. <laughs> and it's it, not the way. It's uh, definitely not the way you would you would pose it if it was one person writing it. No. Right. And I will point out not only no, there wasn't a reaction to it in combat, there also wasn't a reaction to it after the combat. But uh, yes, so they, they they pick up, and it is hilarious. I will grant, like like I oh, yeah. I, I laugh <laughs> I laugh every time I go back to this part because I just, yeah. I picture it, it it hits my particular sense of humor where and I would write this scene. I would yes. go, hmm, what does that thing do? Here's some disposable human or here's some disposable dwarf. Pick up, launch. Right. <laughs> Which is and because clearly that's why he was there too. Yeah, like, like clearly like, that's why Matt put him there. Here, here's so the expendable, <laughs> and it's a great way to do because that's that's how you that's how you that's how you illustrate a threat without it killing your party. I've I do this as a GM quite a lot. Uh-huh. It's throwing and, wharf across the bridge, you know. Yeah, you know, it's the, this is how you determine how dangerous it is, throw a non-essential character at it. And sometimes that non-essential character is a player character who decided he didn't want to run away. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so they launch him, and, and the monster just tears it apart. R.I.P. Theod. Yeah. Uh, it, it opens its mouth, jaws wide, jaws open wide, its tentacles rip the Duragar in half. Devours the blood spray, relishing in the gore. The creature then takes notice of them and shifts its gaze in their direction. Vex fires a pair of arrows into it as Tiberius then moves the stone over it and drives it down on top of it. Uh, The team spills off, some landing better than others, and they're all now face-to-face with the abomination. And just about everyone wants to get away from it. Vex, you know, stabs it multiple times. Kima rips a hole in its torso and then watches as it slowly regenerates the damage that it was dealt. Keyleth makes a uh, basically makes a wall of stone across the floor to you know, across the ground to give them a solid place to stand so that the things can't drag them underneath the dirt. Percy shoots at it and and falls back looking for purchase on a rocky outcropping. Uh, the creature grabs Kima, leaping away from the central area, and Tiberius uses his telekinesis to wrench the arm free and and let Kima loose from its grip. Vex continues to shoot it. Vex grapples it into the ground. 
Kiwa continues to slice into it. Corona sends a lightning bolt at it, and it does five damage. Seven, I right, think. Seven. Total. It is seven yeah. damage. Yeah. <laughs> Pansiest lightning bolt ever. I think that, I think that was minimum damage, uh, and Clarota felt very bad about himself, and everybody tried to cheer him up, at which point I wrote down, I, I made a note at this point as everybody tries to cheer him up, that Vox Machina does not have good, uh, does not have good... Vetting? Uh, what's the Instincts. term? They're not good at judging people. They're not good judges of <laughs> character. Yeah, they're not good judges of character. That's it. Because they're very. Some of them are very untrustworthy of the paladin, but they all completely trust the elephant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, trust and support. It's it's. I don't give people respect unless it's earned. Clarota, good job. <laughs> <laughs> Narratively confusing. You know, if narrative dissonance, it happens. Um, I would like to say that, honestly, at this point in the, the fight, especially the first time I was watching it, I was a little disappointed because at this time, Aberrant Doc Ock, or whatever this monster is, has attacked and injured several pieces of the party. But the first two attacks we saw from this thing was literally one tentacle shoots out, or what we can assume is one tentacle shoots out and literally decapitates a troll. And the other one, it bodily, with one multi-attack apparently, rips a Durgar in half. So I'm at least hoping for some dismemberment by this point. Right. Yeah, uh, so so we, we definitely have the, as we like to come back to, Buffy Super Vampire issue here. Right, we got a little uh-huh. bit of that. So great job in establishing it as a threat, but I would love to have seen... The follow through. It, I would love to have seen follow through. Some somebody should have at least you know had a limb disabled or something. I would say during this fight. Granted, this you know is also a game, not just a narrative. But even so, there are ways you could make that happen. No, no, that, that that's perfectly fine. I was gonna, I was actually gonna gonna ask about that because mm-hmm. for the most part, this guy, while seeming very threatening, doesn't do much. As a, as an enemy, because it's mostly the gang beat the crap out of him until it until it dies, mm-hmm. and it has some sort of creepy like you know H.R. Geiger and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft kind of stuff going on later. But uh, for for the most of the battle part, it just feels very much like a letdown. Yeah, it and, is a little bit. Part of that is probably a part of that. I feel is you know the rolling of uh, just like rolling on damages and and, and to hit stuff, but it it did feel less threatening than I feel like it should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, narrative. I do want to. I do want to. Sorry, go back a little bit. Something that happened pre-fight. Sure. While they are figuring out what they're going to do to get across the across the field, Pike. Finds out that her ah, yeah, yeah, yes, crack. yes, I I did forget I did skip over that because it wasn't in my notes. Yeah, um, although I did remember it. Yes, Pike's holy symbol is uh, is revealed to be cracked before they start uh, traveling across the field of bone and glass, and here we get into a Tiberius moment, um, where Tiberius <laughs> tries to pull out his mending wheel that he doesn't have, which that was mostly a misunderstanding between the player and the GM as to the size. Yes. Of the but it's wheel. a very <laughs> character. But it's a very character consistent thing. Yeah. where Tiberius is played, you know, and regardless of your opinions on Orion, he plays a very right. consistent character. Yes. Of oh, there's a problem. All it needs is more Tiberius. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you've got a problem, you know, I mean, right. As, as far as Tiberius problem, is concerned, oh my god, right. as I far knew as you're going to say that, right? As far as Tiberius is concerned, he is the world's magic bullet. Yeah. You know, it, and it, sometimes it, that's fun, and sometimes that's funny, and sometimes it's tiresome, but but it's consistent. It is consistent. <laughs> he 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 is he is vanilla ice. Right. <laughs> Take that, however you wish. If you've got a problem, <laughs> yo, I'll solve it. Check out this beat while the DJ revolves it. <laughs> Pulls out a beat, flips it around. <laughs> but Pike realizes that maybe as a healing cleric of a healing god, I shouldn't have ripped the throat out of a Durak. Yeah, but Sarah Ray is a and war god too, though, which you have to bear in mind. Which is, yeah, she, An so unarmed it is worth enemy. Yes, right. absolutely. It is worth noting that Pike is a war cleric. Yeah. That being said, I love this moment because, especially after the big discussion that we just spent fifty minutes talking about, the, the, there's a moment where it reinforces the 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 theology aspect of of the fantasy setting, in which, oh yeah. If you are, if you consider yourself the servant of the deity and gain power from them, your actions do have consequences. Yep. And it's a nice moment to sort of reinforce that, both in a D&D aspect of a nice little hint that uh, maybe it didn't go quite well because they picked on it up on it quickly. But I've had situations like that in D&D games where the players completely missed it. Yeah. And like... Oh, yeah. Oh, that you know, like like even in this one, so I, I can't remember what it says. Well, maybe it got cracked, and you know, maybe I got broken in the battle or something like that. They completely miss it, and then go so far off their path. And, but well, but Pike, Pike, and from a narrative, who point, is relatively it, picks it up. Yes, right. Yeah, and um, from and, a narrative and, point, and, it's and nice of, in terms of world building. Right, yeah, no. and some and, of that is on the onus of the storyteller. You know, just. An offhand comment will be treated by a by a player by a, by oh, a character yeah. or a viewer as an offhand comment. So if you're trying to drive a point home, like, I've got I've got home. a character in a in my Saturday morning game who has a cursed sword of vengeance and has no idea because honestly, it's all he uses and mechanically he would have to try and either use a different weapon or something. You know, there's. And yeah. he just hasn't hit any of the triggers. But I'm perfectly happy with that aspect of the story right now because eventually it's going to pay off. Um, and so just to go back and correct, Saren Ray is not a war god. No. Uh, Saren Ray's portfolio is the sun, redemption, oh, honesty, that's right, that's right, that's right. and healing. But she is – but Pike is a war cleric. That's what, was, cleric, yes, yes. that's what I was thinking. I get those mixed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's, a, here's a reading from Saren Ray, and this is why – what happened to Pike's amulet happened. Sarah Ray teaches temperance and patience in all things. Compassion and peace are her greatest virtues, and if enemies of the faith can be redeemed, they should be. Yeah, not much temperance there. Yet there in, are those who Pike have... Did. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, now, the remorseless evil, remorseless evil mm-hmm. should and must be you know, it must have justice delivered upon them. Right. But if there is opportunity for redemption... That should be your primary goal as a devotee of Serenray. So a war cleric for Serenray isn't necessarily an unknowable thing, but it's one of those line treaders. Like, you have to be very specific in how you practice this particular... Especially because that's not a domain she... That's not a portfolio she has. 
So these are not abilities she would normally give her clerics. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it, and it's it's you know with, with that you know looking at that, Pike, not even callously, just casually mm-hmm. ripping the throat out of an enemy with her mace is very against whatever what everything yes. Saren Ray teaches. Like it wasn't Again, even, it wasn't even a but you know great character choice. But it like you know it, it has consequences, yeah. and I love that. In that moment, Pike realizes, oh, yep, right, mm-hmm. I'm a cleric. <laughs> yes. Like, and, and it's, 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 it's a very great bit of characterization there. I really enjoyed it. I, I, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't mean to skip over it, but it, it, you know. But yeah, so fast forwarding back to the battle. Yes. We're almost done because basically they, they, they continue to beat this thing into the ground. Um, there was a yeah. there was a moment where Trinket does get knocked out mm-hmm. by the creature because a uh, it starts it rips itself open and begins to spew noxious gas all over everything, mm-hmm. which causes Trinket's kitten polymorph to break. And then as he tries to climb up onto the wooden platform, he provokes an attack of opportunity from the creature and it hits him with a tentacle and just one shots him. Yep. And so at that which point, which to me was a great moment as well because oh yeah. The, the the relationship between Vex and Trinket is one of those that I absolutely love but gets very mm-hmm. little attention, I think, from from the audience most most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. And this is I think the first time in the early series where you get to actually see that enacted in a less than casual, affectionate sort of way. Yes. Oh yeah, no, she's she's crying as she's just unloading right. arrows yeah. into this thing. You know, and you can you can see you know, and, and Laura does Laura, a great job. And Laura was too, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Because because yeah, no. Because as much as Vex loves Trinket, I think Laura loves Trinket more. Um, that that you is know. very possible. <laughs> um, which is which just makes it all that much better, right? But yeah, you know. So so yeah. So some great character reinforcing aspects there. As a DM, I can say never you can you can kill players with more impunity than you can kill players' pets most of the time, to be quite honest. What are you talking about? You are going to get a worse reaction from a player for killing their pet in-game than you're going to get from killing them in-game most of the time. <laughs> especially most when time. especially when it was accidental. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, no. I'll have, to, let, I'll have to tell you guys about the saga of Fast Paws at some point. And, uh, yeah. I know, the one, I know the one that John's talking about. <laughs> there was a bird that died. And it... <laughs> no, it wasn't a bird. Wasn't it a bird? No, no. it was a sloth. <laughs> Oh no, the sloth. Yes. Yeah. No, I was talking about. I was talking about a particular owl. Oh yeah, that uh, I have bad. I have had bad uh, experiences with other players' pets. Well, and from a mechanical perspective, which we don't analyze on this podcast, but let me just say. D&D pets are fucking fragile and players insist on putting them in combat situations regardless. Yeah, no, they don't. (laughs) But anyway, Trinket does not die here for those of you who haven't watched the episode. No, uh, no, they, 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 they kill the creature, get Trinket back up, heal him. And they continue on to the other side of the the path. Uh, with Percy because, gets a badass uh, sniper shot. So it's they, epic. This is where so this is where Pike determines that the the ground is mostly n- n- the bones in the ground are necromantic, and that's what's been pulling people under. And she has a mace of disruption that destroys undead things. And so Pike just starts 
windmilling her mace to yeah, clear got, a path she goes, through the she ground. She goes full Thor on that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, she starts windmilling her mace to clear a path and gets everybody through to the other side of the uh, the, the field of glass and bone. Once they're, once they're clear of it, they notice a bit of light flickering in the distance, and they, they sort of sneak up on what appears to be a, a Durgar wagon. And they find uh, uh, Vax sneaks ahead and finds what appears to be a, a, a Durgar cooking meat over a fire. And then in addition to that, they see a cart that has Grog in it, unconscious and being prepared to be served. Uh, at that point, he calls to the others to come and so basically says it's go time. And at that point, they end the episode. So yeah, so that was that was episode eight, Glass and Bone, which was pretty much a good half and half episode. The first half yeah. of the episode was drama and plot, and then the second half of the episode was combat and drama. So yeah, I, it, yeah a good balance. We spent a lot of time on this one talking about the beginning because... I, most of the shit happened in the most beginning. Most of the shit happened in the beginning, <laughs> and for me, I think probably the biggest in the in the early... And this does get better as they go along, but the biggest sort of narrative dissonance things happened mm-hmm. uh, there in the beginning. This is definitely right. one of those that has the bigger, the bigger one of those mm-hmm. what's going on moments. But bookended in between that narrative dissonance is one of... Honestly, one of my favorite exposition dumps, I think, that Mercer yes. has ever done. Yeah. That whole that whole bit with the vision and Orcus and that sort of thing. It's fantastic, not only just because it it gives a sense of scope and you can you you can for the for the viewer at least, you know, it's happening in the middle of a very sort of personal borderline petty argument. <laughs> so I don't think the, the characters borderline. Right. I don't think the characters felt it, but if you look at that paragraph, the scope and tenor and stakes of the entire plot have just ramped up one more exponential level. You know, it's not just, oh, we got a crazy wizard down here who's doing bad shit and my it's like we're talking about gods of undeath and ancient artifacts of dark evil and you know the fact that you know there's there's a borderline regional if not global threat brewing under these mountains because one not both but just one of these artifacts was found by the wrong person you know and it's like this is an oh shit moment for me as a as a writer or a reader Mm -hmm. Uh, and and i i just love that that level of of change that sort of overtakes the story there. The you only know, thing that w- is... the only thing that would have made it better is if it could have been underscored in a way that pushed it into the forefront beyond the, you know, hissy fit that was happening in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> this is easily one of the more memorable episodes when yeah, when no. you talk to other critters about it. Mm-hmm. Um this is the one that so many people go back to because of the very sequence that we that we all talked about. And whether you love it or you hate it, you have to you you have to acknowledge that one way or another it inspired and i don't know anybody the fact that that everybody kept watching after that point oh yeah means this is not this is not necessarily a a a moment in terms of like a, a terrible you know fuck you i'm not i'm i'm done moment because it's still early on it's still very easy for people to 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 step away at this point without the level of investment that 80 some episodes later you know so whether you love it or hate it the fact that it's st- 
still has people talking about it, not just us, but, but you know, people still argue about this to this day. It means that ultimately it was pretty successful in what it was oh, yeah. doing. No, like I said, I like this. I like the situation. Yes. I just hate Keyleth for yep. that five minutes. And that is, <laughs> that is fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So next week, we will be talking about episode nine, Yugvoril Uncovered. And we have been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out on our website at finalshowfilms.com. You can check us out on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms. And you can check us out on at uh, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash finalshowfilms. And at 411mania.com. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about 411mania.com. 411 Mania, folks. You want to know whether Marvel's Iron Fist is, is, is worth checking out when it debuts this week? Yes, I do. Do you want to know what the latest, uh, oh, what happened on the latest NXT? Do you yes, want to know do, the latest actually. Overwatch news? Then Hell we've yes, got <laughs> all that kind of stuff. We cover everything that geeks are interested in from movies, TV, music, gaming, MMA, wrestling. All of it. Come check us out, 411mania.com. We rock. Where you can get all of your artisanal, handcrafted geekery. Yes. How is Iron Fist, by the way? I actually have not seen it yet. According to the guy, uh, Jeffrey Harris, our guy who did review it, he gave the first six episodes a seven and a half out of ten. So that's not bad. Way worse than the previous ones. But decent. But decent, according to him. I mean... What? Not three out of ten. <laughs> no, no, seven and a half out of ten. Yeah. So that that that's positive. All right. Uh, so yeah, check them out. Uh, check us out on our Patreon page. Like I said, thank you to all of our our patron supporters, especially our twenty five dollars supporters, Chris Comfort and Titanic, uh, and our new supporter. We have a brand new supporter on Patreon, Star Nerf, who's who's entered into the ten dollar category. Thank you, Star Nerf, um, which puts us at twenty nine dollars away from our hundred dollar uh, subscribe uh, donation goal, um, which. At hundred dollars a month, we will be diversifying our podcasts into multiple different streams. So you'll be able to separate out critical thinking. We'll have its own stream. Uh, uh, Natural twenty review will have its own podcast stream. The actual plays will have their own, and there will also still be the aggregate podcast feed that this is all on. So if you want to see that happen, if you want to be able to easy, more easily condense your uh, final your final show films podcast listening into bite sized chunks. Feel free to go throw a couple bucks our way on the Patreon page. We appreciate that. We appreciate you guys, and we will see you all. Next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.